WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. We're going to take a trip right now. Like we always do about this time. This is a journey into sound. You're tuned in to 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm Kyle Long from Nouveau News Weekly, and this is Cultural Manifesto. On tonight's program, I'll be featuring an extended interview with the legendary author and publisher, Dr. Haki Madubuti. Dr. Madubuti will be visiting Indianapolis this Friday, December 11th. From 2 to 3 p.m., Dr. Madubuti will be leading a poetry workshop at the Indianapolis Public Library's East 38th branch. And later that evening at 6 p.m., Dr. Madubuti will be giving a lecture at Martin University's Gathertorium. In the second half of tonight's broadcast, we'll be featuring our monthly local motion segment with Matt Davis. Tonight, Matt will be featuring a live in-studio performance from singer-songwriter Alex Hall. In addition to his groundbreaking work in literature, Dr. Haki Madubuti also recorded a pair of albums collaborating with jazz musicians. Before I welcome Dr. Madubuti onto the show, I want to play a track off his 1976 LP, Rise Vision Coming. I'm Kyle Long. You're listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. We are not a tribe. We are a nation. We are not wandering groups. We are a people. We are not without land. There is Africa. If we let others define us, our existence, our definition will be dependent upon the eyes, ears, and minds of others. Other people's definitions of us cannot be accurate for us because their hurt is not our hurt. Their laughter is not our laughter. Their view of the world is not our view of the world. Others' definitions of the world is necessary for their survival and control of the world. And for us to adopt their view of the world is a necessary step toward their continued control over us. Therefore, to let others define us is to assure we will be a tribe, we will be wandering groups, we will be landless. Self-definition is a first step toward self-control. I'm Kyle Long. You're tuned in to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm honored to welcome a groundbreaking figure from American literature onto the show, Dr. Haki Madubuti, who's joining us via phone from his offices in Chicago. So Dr. Madubuti, uh, the publishing company you founded, Third World Press, you've published dozens and dozens of books by important authors ranging from Amiri Baraka to Sonia Sanchez to Gwendolyn Brooks, and you've also published one of our uh, great authors here in Indianapolis, uh, Mari Evans. I wanted to ask a little bit about your relationship with Miss Evans. I know it extends beyond publishing her work. Oh, yes. I met uh, Mari Evans back in the 70s, just after she had published uh, I'm a Black Woman. It was one of the major books to come out during the Black Arts Movement, and really one of the books that kind of set the pace for uh, all of us. Uh, she's such a fine poet, and most certainly one of the um, major poets in the United States. Surprised that uh, she has not been named Poet Lord of the United States. Well, certainly surprised that she has not been named poor lawyer of the state of Indiana. She is a, a woman of, uh, of immense talent, multiple talent. Not only is she a fine poet, she's also a musician also. Mari Evans, uh, again, is a very committed writer, poet, and she's committed to uh, her hometown of Indianapolis. I've had the uh, honor and pleasure to be uh, a friend of hers for, you know, over 40 some odd years. Another writer that lived here in Indianapolis that I don't believe you ever published any of his work, and p- please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I know you had some uh, connection with him, possibly through the black arts movement, but the great poet Etheridge Knight. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Etheridge and I go back a long ways, too. I mean, obviously, he's not with us anymore, but <clears throat> I met Etheridge uh, when he, in early in his career when he was just starting to write. I actually met him through uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, uh, who uh, helped him to get his first book published. And once he came out of prison, 
visited us in Chicago, and you know we've read on a couple of programs together. Indianapolis is really uh, should be honored to have produced uh, at least those two forwards. I'm sure there are others, but uh, at this night was top of this game, and uh, he too will live. Uh, this is Gwendolyn Brooks uh, uh, within our mind and memory for the excellent work that he's uh, produced over his lifetime. And you never had an opportunity to, to publish one of his uh, volumes of poetry, did you? No, no. Uh, he, he was published through um, earlier through Broadside Press in, in Detroit, uh, Michigan. Okay. And the scope of works you've published through Third World is, is pretty incredible. I mentioned some of the authors you've worked with, and you've published your own work as well. A particular philosophy of, of the company that I, I was fascinated by is you let the artists keep all the proceeds from their work. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Correct. Yeah. We... we uh, in terms of my own work, I just donate everything back to the press. But we um, are a house that essentially exists for the writer, for the poet. And we're not a quote-unquote profit-making company. So the whole premise was how do we build independent black institutions that do not prey on the black community but serve the black community. A moment ago I mentioned the black arts movement in connection to Etheridge Knight, and you had a role in that movement. Do you want to speak on, on your uh, connection and role within the black arts movement? Well, that movement started simultaneously around the country as a result of the assassination of Malcolm X in 1965. Malcolm was kind of a kind of a creative and innovative father for all of us. He kind of set the pace in terms of our thinking and also in terms of our politics. And most certainly when uh, he was assassinated, we began to question our own relationship at a higher level to uh, the United States and to America as well as to the world. One thing that we discovered in terms of whether we're in New York, or Newark, or Chicago, or Cleveland, or Indianapolis, or St. Louis, or uh, Oakland, or Los Angeles, or the case may be, or Houston, or New Orleans, was that we had to begin to redefine ourselves. We ceased being Negroes and became black people, people of African ancestry, African Americans. And that was critical, because once you begin to define yourself from the positive, then you start reacting to all this other negative stuff that's possible. And as a result of that, in terms of redefinition and uh, refocusing our uh, strengths on trying to provide positive direction for ourselves as well as for our communities, we began to build. So coming out of the 60s, I and, and other people around the country decided that we, had, we need to have our own institutions and we need to be able to do build these institutions without input, or most certainly philosophical input, from others outside of our community. And so my role in the Black Arts Movement was not only as one of the architects, but also as one of the founders of uh, two of the institutions, as well as building institutional structures on university campuses. For over 42 years, I was in the academy teaching. That's how I made a living since I didn't take any resources out of Third World Press or our schools, as well as my wife. My wife, Dr. Carol D. Lee, is still still teaching. She's on the faculty at Northwestern University where she is in a dial chair. I retired in 2011 from DePaul University here in Chicago. And so for us, it's always been about service. How do you, how do you serve a community that, in many cases, is not even sure of itself? cannot define itself. Going back in your life even further than the black arts movement, I wanted to get your thoughts on a couple moments that I've read were key points and turning points in your life. The first being, I believe you were 14 years old and you encountered the work of Richard Wright. You said that his work like saved your life. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What was it about his work that as a young person it spoke to you that profoundly? Well, you must understand that uh, most of us, most white people, grew up in... Uh, some people call them plantations, but I call them slave labor camps. They continue to be slave labor camps, even though we're not held together by chains, but the, the, the chains have been put on our minds. And when you control a man or a woman's mind, you have his or her body nine times out of ten. And so I, growing up in urban uh, Detroit and urban Chicago, I really hated myself. And that my mother was a reader, but she was not necessarily an educated person, but she, in terms of formal education, but she was self-taught. And during that period, back in the 50s, Richard Wright was riding pretty high, and his name was uh, everywhere, and 
of course, two of his major books, uh, Nader Son and The Black Boy, which is Black Boy is more autobiographical. She asked me to go to the uh, library to check out Black Boy, which I refused at first because I hated myself. And I didn't want to go to a white library and ask a white librarian for a book with black in the title, authored by a black writer who was critical of white America. And this is so much I, I hated myself and disrespected myself. But anyway, I went. And I found the book on the shelf and put it to my chest and walked in a people's section of the library and sat down and began to read. For the first time in my life, I was reading literature that was not an insult to my own personhood. I was reading sentences and paragraphs that were about me and spoke directly to my own experiences. I read Black Boy in less than 24 hours. Uh, I gave it to my mother the next day and went back and checked out everything Richard Wright had published at that time. And so I was on my way. And what Richard Wright taught me was to think and to think critically and to question the world critically. And if I had not found him, I don't know where my life would be today because his impact was tremendous. And so when I moved into the 60s and still looking for uh, a way to express myself, it was very clear to me I had to look out for, look into uh, institutional structures that would give me some sense of substance. And that's when I found the DuSable Museum, which at that time was in, uh, uh, the Ebony Museum of Negro History, which is now the DuSable Museum of, of African American History. And my mentors over the years have been Malcolm X, L. Malik Yanshaban, Margaret and Charlie Burroughs, there's who are the founders of the Gustavo Museum of American History, which is the first black museum in the country in Chicago. Duddy Randall, who was a fine, po who was a fine poet and founded uh, Broadside Press, one of the first black presses in the country. Hort um, W. Fuller, who was the uh, managing editor of Negro Digest Black World Magazine, which was the major monthly periodical to chronicle the black arts movement between 1965 and 1975-76. Then it was Barbara Ann Sizemore, Dr. Barbara Sizemore, who was the um, first black superintendent of public schools for the District of Columbia, uh, where she lasted probably about a year, a year and a half before they got rid of her because she was just on a mission to make sure that those who taught black people actually loved black people and had the skills and the, um, the right attitude to teach our children. And then finally, the person who had the most in upon me, the greatest impact was Gwilin and Brooks, whom I met in 1967, and she and I became um, family, uh, 33 years of, of familyhood. So that, that gives you a little bit of background. The reason I chose Chicago, when my father lived here, we were never close, but when my mother passed, I came to live with him, which was for about six months, and then I moved into the YMCA, finished high school, and ended up in the military. Well, while in the military, I read close to a book a day. And if each book I read, I would write a 250-word essay. And, you know, I would mock up all these books and ask questions of the books myself. But the point of all of this is that I realized the importance of ideas, that ideas and the creators of ideas actually run the world. Another moment I wanted to ask you about from your early days that was meaningful for you, and you just referenced your time in the military. I heard you tell a story about arriving at basic training, and you were reading a copy of Paul Robeson's memoir, Here I Stand, and that landed you in some hot water with the drill sergeant or one of your superior officers. Well, that's true. Uh, I had just turned 18. I was reading Paul Robeson's Here I Stand on the way to basic training at Fort Leonardwood, Missouri. This was 1960. Actually, it was in October of 1960. I and two other black men, we had all joined. This was before Vietnam, and there was not a draft. But the Army then, as is today, is a poor boy, a poor girl's answer to unemployment. And so that's what I was, I was looking for, a place to eat, sleep, and, you know, pay me some. And so I joined the Army. Uh, I didn't have any other choice at that time. But I was a reader, and I was reading Paul Wilson's book, and we got to Fort Leonard and stepped off the bus, and it was a little white community of white soldiers and recruits. And this young white drill sergeant, about 33, 34 years old, uh, saw Paul Wilson's big black magnificent face on the cover of the book I was had in my hand, and he snatched it out of my hand 
and blocked in my face. What you know? What's your Negro mind doing reading that black communist? Black communist. That's the first time I heard a double negative used so creatively. You know? And so he said, all you women up against the bus. Now, there are no women there. This is 1960, and women had not joined the military, most certainly the United States Army, at any great level. The sexism was riding high then, as it is now, but not as bad as it was then. And he said, you know, all you women up against the bus. And we all jumped back, and he held his book over his head, and he commenced to tear the pages out of my book. Now, obviously... I'm petrified. I said, what am I doing here? But I was there because I was poor, black, and didn't have any other alternatives. And so, uh, but it taught me several things. One, that I'm a man of African ancestry, I'm a black man in America, and that I should never deny that and should never apologize for that. So that was a good lesson. The second thing he taught me was the importance of ideas and that the creators of ideas and the carriers of ideas actually run the world. And that if I was going to amount to anything, I got to be able to deal with ideas. And then third, third was that it is critical to realize who your enemy is or who your enemies are and to begin to prepare for them. And I had learned that by reading Sun Tzu, The Art of War. But it was critical to, for me to have read Richard Wright, to have read Paul Robeson, the red W.B. Du Bois, the red Chester Hines, the red Melvin B. Tolson, the red Linkston Hughes, to, to read all these writers prior to my getting to the military because I was ready for the kind of nonsense and the kind of put-downs that the military used in order to break you down and build you back up into what they want you to be. I had scored pretty high going in, so they had really kind of put me on track to become an officer. But by the time I got through middle, through basic training, I asked so many questions. They said, no way now. This is you asked too many questions to be an officer. And so, of course, I stayed listed person, man, until I, I got out. But that's the story about the um, Paul Robeson. I did a memoir a few years back called Yellow Black, the first 21 years of a poet's life. And in that book, I have a picture of Paul Robeson and W.B. Du Bois. And I, under, under the picture of them, it's kind of a portrait of the two of them together. I have, I adopted both of them as my grandfathers, you know, so that's how important each of them were to me. Wow. I did want to ask a, a couple questions related to music. Uh, you made a pair of amazing LPs that combined spoken word with spiritual jazz. Right. Rise, Vision, Come In in 1976, and I believe it's pronounced Madassi in 1984. Yeah, Madassi. Right. Yeah, can, those are amazing records. Can you tell us a little bit about how those came to existence? And, and oh, music? sure, and they still exist. You can get them on CD from Third World Press, yeah. uh, uh, thirdworldpressbooks.com, uh, both of them, Madassi and uh, Rise, Vision, Come In. I used to teach at Howard University. Um, my teaching life and history started at Columbia College here in Chicago, and then I began to teach at uh, Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and then I moved to Howard. And at Howard, it was an amazing group of young men and women uh, who came to my classes, who took my classes, who ordered my classes, and many of them were musicians. If you read my autobiography or my memoir, you see I used to be a trumpet player. And so I was always in love with the music, most certainly Miles Davis and Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong was my favorite trumpet player, musician. Uh, I didn't feel that anybody could touch him at all. You know, I didn't necessarily care for his mannerisms, but as a bona fide, root-based <laughs> musician, couldn't nobody touch Louis Armstrong. And so that's why I picked up trumpet in the first place. But soon after I started playing and getting lessons and stuff like that, I began to realize I never could touch what he was doing. And then come along came this tall, black, very creative, serious trumpet player by the name of Miles Davis, come out of East St. Louis. And so Miles was more my man because essentially he was, you know, he was cool. He was, you know, essentially ready to take on the world on his own terms. And Miles, I mean, he played a trumpet, you know, and, and the women, the women would gravitate towards Miles Davis like he was a free shoe store, you know, so I was, well, they wanted to play me some trumpet. And I picked it up and realized that it was not my forte. And when I went into the military, since I was so broke, I had to end up, I ended up pounding my horn, my, I had a Martin trumpet, and my clothes, because I was so broke. So music was critical in terms of my whole life, and so when I got to Howard, 
with all these young musicians around me, and, and I'm, you know, writing my poetry and publishing poetry and so forth. We decided to hook up and 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 make these two two albums. Uh, Rise, Vision, Coming was the first one. We wound each other with false words, evil eyes, often lies, and pettiness disguised as criticism. Watch the men closest to you. Some of them carry the knives to cut the deepest as they agree with you while you die bleeding. Yet still, even among the closest of enemies, the best defense for your position is your practicing it. Sold over 30,000 copies without any kind of serious uh, advertisement because it was more the black grapevine it got out there and began to sell. I mean, it really began to sell. And then since Ryan's Vision Coming did so well, we did a second one called Mandasa. And uh, so well also. And so um, we kept them in, 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 in play uh, and put them on CDs, the CDs now, uh, if they were fresh. So, yes, and these musicians were really phenomenal. I don't know if you heard the albums. Yes, yet. they're amazing. But, Love them. You know, really, yeah. I mean, AJ, who was the uh, tenor, uh, the uh, soprano saxophone player, he, was, he wrote most of the music. Just fantastic uh, musician. And then some of the musicians, of course, went along, along and still are playing. Well, clearly the piano player, um, what was her name? Um, Jerry Allen? Jerry Allen, right. So she was just starting out. You see, all these were students at Howard, most of them. And, uh, and I was, you know, I was teaching there at that time. It was a great, great, great time, you know, to be in the music and, and the poetry. And we would go around the group. We would go around all of D.C. and, and, and Maryland. In Virginia, and, and read poetry and, and uh, play music. I'm Kyle Long. You're listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. Let's pause for a moment and listen to another selection of Dr. Madhu Budi's work combining spoken word poetry and jazz. <laughs> Yeah. 
In between nights, parties strong. In between mortgages and debt-ridden promises. In between eyes glued to the tube, dude. Look for the children. In between pimps and holes slamming Cadillac doors. In between mad and sane. In between bone and where, where the children, mama, father, brother, sister. Spend much time with the children you do picking your wardrobe, Freddie B. Check their blank faces and unknown future. Check their fading smiles and bodies weakening under lies, polite neglect, and the ruin of the West. Look for the children clean as you outdress the best in the West. Look for the children, mama. Check your image, track man. Is it a fact that you know more about them horses and your own son, $2 Willie? Observe the children, Big Mac. Swing and sue and get down, Eddie. Give some attention to the coming adults, Dr. Morris, Reverend Mooney, Attorney Childs, Judge Christian, as you negotiate for your new ride, as you prepare for your next trip to the islands, as you manicure your nails and press your hair, as you look toward tomorrow, dancing Billy and Miss Clairol, as you take that next drink, as you construct that dynamite joint, as you make ready to bump all weekend in your customized van, what's gonna happen to the babies, dude? Who's gonna watch their growth? Shake their mind. Look for the children, mama. Where's your man child, father? I'm Kyle Long. You're listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. If you're just tuning in tonight, my guest is author and publisher Dr. Haki Madhubuti. Dr. Madhubuti will be appearing in Indianapolis this Friday, December 11th. At 2 p.m., he'll be conducting a poetry workshop at the Indianapolis Public Library's East 38th Street branch. And at 6 p.m., he'll be giving a lecture at Martin University's Gathertorium. Both events are free and open to the public. Another uh, music connection in your career, in 1990 you published Gil Scott Heron's So Far So Good, and I know your relationship with uh, Gil Scott Heron was, was much deeper than that. Could you oh, talk yeah. a little bit about your, your connection with the late, great Gil Scott Heron? You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. Gil, evidently, I had influenced him in terms of his own work. If you look at his first book, there's a poem in the, on, on me in his mm-hmm. first book. And so we hooked up later on in the, in the 70s. And, uh, obviously, he had achieved fame far beyond me and, and any other poet for the most part. He was, he was a genius, you know. And mm-hmm. so the context of not only being a poet and, and fiction writer, by the time he was in his early 20s, maybe late teens, he had... He had published two novels, okay? I mean, he's really brilliant. And the only thing that really ruined his life was basically drugs. He got into this drug thing. And from that point on, everything was a question mark. A junkie walking through the twilight I'm on my way home I left three days ago But no one seems to know I'm gone
But you look at all those early records coming out in the 70s and early 80s, I mean, they were just masterpieces. And, uh, I mean, the revolution would not be televised. I mean, everybody and their mama is saying that now. This work on South Africa and, of course, what was happening here in this country, it's just brilliant, brilliant. And uh, his work with, what is this, Brian Jackson? Yes. Uh, was just outstanding. I mean, it just shows you the kind of creativity that comes from this community. And so we hooked up again back in the 80s when I had moved to Chicago State University. Uh, and I was creating these institutions at Chicago State. We had the, uh, we had the uh, Gwendolyn Brooks uh, Center for Creative Writing and Black Literature. And then out of that center, I was able to bring Gwendolyn Brooks for her last 10 years to teach at Chicago State, which she did not want to do, but I talked into coming. Uh, we had the Gwendolyn Brooks Writers Conferences, as well as uh, the International Literary Hall of Fame for Writers of African Descent and the uh, first uh, MFA program in creative writing in the country uh, at a predominantly black university at Chicago State University. And so during the period when we were having these conferences every year, I think I brought Gil, Gil Scott Heron in there about twice. I brought him in to help do a fundraiser for our institutions, which are, you know, in the black community and independent. So we were close, and but you couldn't talk to him about the problem. You know, he would not listen. Mm. And he was always in denial. He was always in denial. And, uh, but, it, you know, so I, being older than Gil and recognizing, and, and come out of a, a, a family of, of, of addicted folk, understood what was going on. So in order to maintain our relationship, I would just, uh, I would always greet him and then ask him how he's doing. And I would generally pick him up in the airport and we'd go out and have something to eat and then go to whatever he's going to do that evening. No, he was a good man. And um, like I say, brilliant in terms of the work that he left us. Left us too soon, obviously. that your work had influenced him as it, when he was a young artist and I've, I've heard your work was also an influence on The Last Poets and Gil oh, Scott yeah. Heron and The Last Poets you know are considered sort of the godfathers of rap music and hip hop right. music Rhythms and sound And leaps and bounds Scales and notes And endless quotes Hey black soul being told Hypnotizing while improvising is mentally appetizing. Up on a tangent, ain't got a scent. Searching, soaring, exploring, seeking you shall find more time, 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 more time to find who, how, where were you? Are you blue? We're not through digging the new. Climbing higher, souls on fire. Seeking the top, can't stop, dig, bop. Left earth on a new birth, in space. Our place and face us. Regenerated, less complicated, vibrating, educating, stimulating. Young and old as a whole, those and old jazz is pros and how it goes and it's going to be me, us, we, free. In that sense, do you feel any sense of connection with, with hip hop culture in, in the sort of. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Many of our students uh, coming through uh, Chicago State and elsewhere have. 
you know, basically grew up with hip hop and uh, my own children. So, yes, absolutely. Getting hat on a scat, the beginning of this, the end of that. Riffing on a cue, the players never threw. Solid baby, me and you. Smooth, gone and flown while your horn is blown. Putting on the show, digging some more black ego. Going up, growing up, that's us. Smoking, cooking, hard boiled like a cobra coil. Blowing your mind, rhythmic time. Digging up, driving, striving, arriving at conclusions. Life and death all in one breath. Minor cards off key, summer breeze with the freeze, listen please. I'm Kyle Long. You're listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. If you're just tuning in tonight, my guest is author and publisher Dr. Haki Marubudi. Dr. Marubudi will be appearing in Indianapolis this Friday, December 11th. At 2 p.m., he'll be conducting a poetry workshop at the Indianapolis Public Library's East 38th Street branch. And at 6 p.m., he'll be giving a lecture at Martin University's Gathertorium. Both events are free and open to the public. Dr. Marubuti, I did want to give you a chance to talk about your latest book. Mm-hmm. It's, it's titled Taking Bullets, Black Boys and Men in 21st Century America, Fighting Terrorism, Stopping Violence, and Seeking Healing. Tell us uh, about that work. Well, the title has changed a little bit. It's okay. Taking Bullets, Terrorism, and Black Life in 21st Century America. Gotcha. I had to really kind of expand upon it after killing these, these women and, and girls out here, too. So I, I made it into something that would be useful for the entire black community. It wasn't just focus on just our boys and, and, and men. This book, Taking Bullets, basically came about as a result of uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, being murdered. And then, of course, what really set me off was the, uh, the murder of uh, the young uh, brother in Cleveland. Tamir Rice. Yeah, Tamir Rice. At, you know, 12 years old. They shot to death by a white Cleveland police officer within, what, 30, you know, three or four seconds running up on him. And so the murder of uh, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Oscar Grant, you know, Eric Gardner, you know, you almost can, you know, Walter Scott, it becomes like a mantra that these young boys and, 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 and teenagers and men are being killed by these Neanderthal cops and all of them got the same excuse. My life, you know, I fear for my life. And, and that's the worst. And of course, it's accepted. But it, it ceased being accepted once cell phones started taking pictures. Okay. And that has been a liberating tool that these people out here with these cell phones taking pictures. And that these cops, obviously, not aware of that. And one of the perfect examples was, was you know, Walter Scott, when the cop just stood at a military stance and shot the brother eight times in the back, you know. Well, hit him about four or five times. And, of course, the same thing with um, Tamir Rice. That was caught on camera, too. I'm 73 years old. So, you know, the question is, what do I do? I mean, I, I can understand hashtag Black Lives Matter, and I write about that in the book. And I really am very grateful for it because this issue is it's doing what we did in the 60s. And the critical point is that what has happened and what continues to happen is not much different than what was happening in the 60s. And what I wanted to make very clear, that what happened in Baltimore, what happened in Ferguson, and what happened in other parts of the world, uh, of the United States, where these people who essentially give us the evening news call them riots, well, these are not riots. You know what I'm saying? That these are rebellions, they are uprisings, because of centuries of not only male treatment, but horrible treatment. And... The question for me, and I write about this in the book, is why do white people hate us so much? Why do they treat us as well? What did we do? Okay? We didn't come here on our own will. I mean, we were raped from Africa and then transported around the Western world and sprinkled around the Western world to build nations for white people. And so we ended up being the most hated people in the, in the country. Other, you know, and, and the only, only people who have suffered it greater than, greater than we have have basically been Native Americans. You know, First Nation people, who they almost wiped out, you know. So my family, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving. You know, if we observe it, it's basically indigenous 
Genocide Day. And so in the book, I deal with the whole question of whiteness and white privilege. I deal with the whole question of you know, police and prison industrial complexes. But just as important, I deal with what, what very few black writers have dealt with in the past is the United States of Empire. What many of us, black, white, Latino, others, do not realize, we're dealing with the last known empire. An empire does not take prisoners. And what's happening today, where you have, you know, really ignorant people like Donald Trump and the whole right-wing presidential candidates coming out here with all this bling-bling about hating Muslims and so forth. But what we have to realize that 9-11 or what's happening in Paris and what's happening in all of the Western world is really what's called blowback. It's blowback as a result of what the West has done for centuries to other non-white people, especially in the Middle East. Anyway, you know, Kyle, I go on and on. It's, 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 a, it's a major piece of work, I sure. think. And uh, try to not only give definitions, but try to put this whole struggle that we're involved in in some kind of context. And I did want to ask a specific question uh, on one of the topics you touched on, particularly regarding Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. you, you've been observing and commenting on the social conditions of the United States for decades. Do you feel like we're at a point now where this sort of white supremacist philosophy is reaching heights that it hasn't seen in decades? Since, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, but I do. But I, on the other hand, I, I do feel optimistic, and the reason for that, Kyle, is because of young people. You know, like I worked in the, I worked in the academy for forty-two years. Even though in you know other research one universities, even private um, universities, you find a lot of privileged white children who don't want to do anything except join fraternities and sororities and act up. But when you look at Black Lives Matter, you look at other social justice movement, you see a lot of white, young white kids out there, just as we saw in the 60s. And so I'm, I'm optimistic, number one, that young people are standing up. And I think that when you get black, brown, white, uh, Asian, and Native American, uh, young people coming together, then we have a great possibility to, to turn this uh, whole uh, mess around. We are going through a very difficult time. I have children, and I'm very concerned. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll voice some of this uh, Friday evening, but the major point is we only do what we've been taught to do. So let me uh, end up with a poem then. You know my poet, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to read a poem that's never been read before. I just finished it. It's, it's in a new book. And the poem is titled More Powerful Than God, uh, More Powerful Than Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism, and Love. More powerful than centrism, ancestor veneration, evolutionism, decency, creative, creationism, monotheism, freedom, atheism, philosophy, science, and fear. More powerful than spirituality, sociology, Marxism, secularism, Zionism, nationalism, climate change, democracy, humanism, and the lives of children. More powerful than Confucianism, morality, communism, Logic, Yoruba and Zulu beliefs, the commons, black theology, Native American First Nation people's beliefs, Egyptology, psychology, joy, and truth. More powerful than peace, prayers, and all of the United States cultural, political, financial system, and reigns as the god of cowardly politicians without a close second, and untouchable is the National Rifle Association. That's powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Marubuti. And thank you, Kyle. I hope things continue to go well for you, young man. You too, and I look forward to seeing you. I encourage everyone to check out your lecture at the Martin University this Friday, December 11th at 6 p.m., and to attend your poetry workshop at the East 38th Indianapolis Public Library branch. That's happening from 2 to 3 p.m. And, and Dr. Marubuti, before you leave, I wondered if... Uh, there's a, a Gil Scott Heron song you'd like me to play as we close out this segment. Do you have a particular favorite from his catalog? Oh uh, yeah, I want to do the piece uh, Johannesburg. Oh, beautiful, I love it. Okay, thank you so much. It was a huge honor speaking with you. All right, and have your listeners go to uh, thirdworldpressbooks.com and, and support us. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Many thanks to Dr. Hakim Madubuti for coming on to Cultural Manifesto. 
And I also want to give a quick thank you to Sebeko and Donna Stokes-Lucas for their help in coordinating this interview. Up next, Matt Davis will be here for his monthly Local Motion segment. Tonight, Matt's featuring a special live performance from singer-songwriter Alex Hall. But first, this is Gil Scott Heron with Johannesburg. I'm Kyle Long. You're listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI Public Radio. I'm joined in the studio this evening by Matt Davis. Hey, Matt. Hey, what's going on, Kyle? It's time for our monthly Local Motion segment. This month, Local Motion is happening Saturday, December 12th at Fletcher Place Arts and Books on 642 Virginia Ave. Tell us what you got coming up this month at Local Motion, Matt. Okay, so if you're not familiar with Local Motion, it's a performance art space and open mic for the local artists in Fountain Square. At Fletcher Place Arts and Books, we have a really exciting feature to end the year outright. It's Cyrus Youngman. If you're not familiar with him, he's an amazing singer-songwriter, so we're really looking forward to it. And we're going to come into January to start the year off right with the For the Love Show, which is going to be a free local motion. That's right. It's going to be a free local motion. We do it every single year at the beginning of the year. Uh, we're going into our third year now, so this is wow. exciting. Yeah. yeah. And you have a guest with you today. Tell us yes, about your do. guest. Uh, we're also here with another amazing singer-songwriter named Alex Hall. Alex, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Uh, so, Alex, for people who are not familiar with you yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I like to think of myself as, you know, like we, re- we refer to our country as a melting pot, but I truly feel like I am a melting pot inside of one person. Um, I like to think that I am a very empathetic and sympathetic person because of the the experiences that I've had, um, you know, I was raised by two mothers and I've tried to capture that in my music and yeah, I'm just a free spirit, I guess. I've heard you specifically identify yourself as a songwriter, not just a singer or a vocalist, Mm -hmm. but specifically a songwriter. What kind of significance does this title have for you? To be honest, singers kind of come and go and stuff, but I truly take pride in the fact that I am an artist who solely likes to connect with my audience via my lyrics. Writing is something that's very important to me because without good lyrics you kind of you kind of just aren't left with much at the end of a song. It's also important to me because it makes me feel better as the creator of that art to get those feelings out, whether they're positive, negative, neutral. It's always healthy to express. And I feel like that's a huge part of music. So since you've begun your journey as an artist, what have been some of the highlights in your evolution thus far? Doing small features and small shows, I was led to collaborate with an artist named Kid Quill. Um, and we got to do some really awesome shows. We opened for Rihanna at the Final Four. Recently, in the past like year, we got to open for a singer named Somo at the, the pageant theater in St. Louis, and it was sold out, which was nuts. Wow. I'd never seen that many people in my life. I've gotten to do some really cool things, like as far as opening. I haven't gotten my own, you know, front and center stage yet, but also just like somewhat smaller opening acts like Riff Raff, which was clowning. And so just like <laughs> getting to experience, like, even though it's just opening, like getting a writer in a, in a dressing room is fun and makes you feel legitimate as an artist. So you said Riff Raff. You brought up Riff Raff. Yes. So for people who don't know who Riff Raff is, I kind of snickered. I try not to. I I try not to laugh. But for you know, for people who don't know who he is, can you tell me how was it opening for Riff Raff? Did you get to meet him? Okay, so Riff Raff, 
was not initially an artist. He was on a show called From G's to Gents. He was obsessed with chapstick. He's a very goofy dude. Kind of goofy looking, cornrows. Like, he's he's just, he's a character. And when we opened for him, there was a moment during his set that a pizza was brought on stage and he was just throwing pizza at the crowd and he said, I do it because I'm balling. And people, you know, like looking at the crowd like they were just loving it. And, which kind of comes back to that whole like fame and image issue. I was about like, to say. Like, you know, it kind of kind of reflects on us too like like more so than the artist but yeah so that that was pretty clowning it it was an experience um and i would i would do it again i'd do it again for the laugh <laughs> but what have been some of your earlier kind of like highlights so before anybody knew your name or before you were like opening for these mega stars i started playing music on my own like been playing guitar since I was in sixth grade and singing my whole life and I just started learning covers and stuff and I would play at house parties and you know people would get down and stuff and it was a good time and but I'd never thought about pursuing it and then I had met another local artist named Maya Evans and we had she had reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to pursue music and at the time I wasn't sure and I had no idea how to even start to even approach that she helped me take the initial turn into pursuing my music. So every segment, um, every artist that we bring on to the segment, we try to have them share a story from the scene. So it could be a happy story, a sad story, just something that you learned, something that you got out of right. the scene. Um, well, one funny thing that had happened, um, also another show that Kate Quill and I played when we were in St. Louis, um, it was with SOMO and Juicy J was supposed to perform. And for some reason it just didn't happen but we were all set up with our own uh writers and our own dressing rooms and the owner of the theater comes up to us and was like so juicy jay's not showing up do you guys want his dressing room and we were just like uh yeah so he let us in there and he had all kinds of stuff he had like every game console ever bean bags all over the floors so many bottles of liquor church's chicken it was nice it's always nice when you can pop bottles and have church chicken yeah. at the same time. It's yeah. a good, it's a good combination. And I was the only one twenty one, so I was popping alone. I was like <laughs> rubbing it in their face. So another thing we try to do every segment is have a, a in studio performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you brought your guitar with you, and you've I also did. brought a, a piece with you. Uh, so can you? T I'm actually familiar with this piece, and it's a it's a powerful one. So you can tell tell us a little bit of, about your motivations behind what, what you wrote. Yeah, this was the first. The song's called People in Reverse, and it was the first song that I had taken a step out of writing about relationships. I was sick of Taylor Swifting people. <laughs> um, and I decided to write about how I felt about the world and the environment that I live in every day. And it was kind of bumming me out. I realized that in a lot of ways, like, we're moving forward, you know, like with technology, and we're moving forward, you know, in all these different ways. But as a race, as a, as the human race, we are moving backwards in the way that we treat each other. We've lost the fundamentals of human nature in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's where that song came from. This is Alex Hall with People in Reverse. Thank you. 
We just heard a special in-studio live performance from Alex Hall with People in Reverse. I'm Matt Davis. You're listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1 WFYI. Alex, that was great. Thank you for that. Where can we find that song, People in Reverse? Well, you can find it on my first ever demo called Jazzy, and it is on Bandcamp and SoundCloud. Alejandro, it's kind of like get your pens and paper. It's H-A-L-L-A-J-A-N-D-R-O bandcamp.com and then my soundcloud is under the same username thank you alex for your time and your insight thank you i'm kyle long you're listening to cultural manifesto on 90.1 wfyi public radio we've just been listening to our monthly local motion segment with matt davis thank you matt thank you alex i want to give folks a final reminder on how they can uh, check out local motion matt it's happening saturday december 12th at fletcher place arts and books which is located at 642 Virginia Avenue near Fountain Square neighborhood. Matt, give uh, folks a reminder of who you got coming up this month as the featured performer. Again, at Locomotion, we highlight only local features. We had Alex at one point, and then now we're uh, this month, we're in and out the year with Cyrus Youngman. Great. Thanks a lot, Matt. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's all the time we have for tonight. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Haki Marubudi, Matt Davis, and Alex Hall. And thank you for tuning in. You can catch Cultural Manifesto here on 90.1 every Wednesday evening at 9. And you can find over three years' worth of columns I've written in the archives of Nouveau.net. I'm Kyle Long. You've been listening to Cultural Manifesto on 90.1. Thank you, and see you next week. See that black boy over there running